0: God, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come before you together, Lord. as your body to give you praise, to give you honor, to give you glory this morning. Let nothing be said today that doesn't bring honor to your name, Lord. Have your way in this place. In your name I pray. Amen. Through
1: every life, through every Never concern.
0: That song is a true story. I didn't write it, but those words could have been mine. Um, I uh, I don't know why I'm about to tell y'all this. Sometimes it's just good to kind of reflect back on who uh, who has been there for you through it all. I, uh, My wife and I <coughs> were coming out of Walmart the other day and some Teen Challenge ladies from uh, Clarksville were set up out there and they had a little booth and they were selling like, they got crosses and different, you know, I don't know if it was like air fresheners or what all it was, but we stopped and we started talking to them and they went to kind of explain what Teen Challenge was and, you know, of course my wife, she's the one that's a lot better at talking to people, I guess. (laughs) She's like, oh yeah, actually my husband and I both graduated Teen Challenge in 2009 and he's a pastor and God can do anything as long as we're willing to submit, you know, and And uh, I mean, I could tell you—you could see like the expression on their face, like not only just being able to relate to somebody, but like just like the hope that they, oh man, can really get it together. You know, this can really happen for me. One of them been there for a year, one of them six months. And if you don't know, Teen Challenges is like a you know twelve to fifteen month program or whatever, and it's all faith based. It's all about—it's all about Jesus. It's all about. Like getting your foundations back in 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 His Word, you know, and 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 starting that relationship at the at the bedrock because you can go to other you know uh, rehabs without Jesus, but you, I mean, if you if you could clean yourself up before you came to Him, what would be the point, right? You can't clean yourself up; only He can, and and so it was. Um, it was pretty awesome just to get to talk with them for a minute because I know that in my life, like I had completely turned my back and run away from God and uh, drugs and alcohol and everything had, had taken me to a dark place and facing prison time. I just you know, cried out to God, like, you gotta, you got to do this because I can't do it anymore. I've tried every way I knew. Um, and It was all just rebelling because I felt like God wanted to use me. I didn't want to be bound to that. I didn't want to go through the same thing that my parents had. I felt like it would be too hard. But uh, there's nothing, there's nothing this world could ever offer that would come close to serving God. I mean, I cannot, I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine a better life. But sometimes, like with this next song, sometimes, It's just hard to find the words to really express like how truly grateful, how truly thankful I am for, not only was he always there, but he he swept me right up in his arms when I cried out to him, and uh, sometimes you don't, don't have the words, but just telling your soul This is the day the Lord's made. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be glad in it. I'm going to give him praise. I'm going to give him honor. Command your soul to do that. All my words fall
1: sure. I got nothing. To do. How could I? could sing these song as I often do, every song must end, but you.
2: Jesus. Father, we worship you out of gratitude, thinking about our own stories and our own lives and those of the lives around us. God, we worship you because you're good. You can be trusted. You're humble and gentle. You're merciful. You're compassionate. Your kind, you're giving, generous God. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Father. In a heart of gratitude, we continue to worship you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Come on, let's sing that again. Thank you, Jesus. We're just thankful this morning god thank you so very much for all that you're doing in us in our community and in our families we love you lord we submit all the things to you all the good things all the bad things all the ugly things god we know there's people in our community that are experiencing great joy and we know there's people in our community experiencing great turmoil and so father we pray that you'd be with and comfort those that are in turmoil, those that are experiencing difficulties in finances and in sickness and in their health, Father. We ask that you bring healing to their bodies and you bring blessing to their families in Jesus' name. We thank you so very much for all that you're doing in your name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you tell somebody around you what you're thankful for. Meet them. Say hello. Maybe you're just thankful they're here or that you're here. Speaking of being here, if you're a guest with us, we're, we're real grateful that you are here this morning. If you want us to know that you're a guest with us, we have a little um, a little system, a little new here system. There's a card in your your seat back in front of you, or you can scan the QR code. Um, That takes you to the link. Um, You can go online and fill that out as well. Um, We just like to send notes of thanks to people that come and give opportunity for you to ask questions. If you have further questions about Christian Fellowship Church, who we are, what we believe and that sort of thing. Also, as a guest, your next step, if you're looking for what your next step is, would be to participate in the Start Here class, which happens every second Sunday of the month. Every second Sunday of the month, Start Here Happens, and if you scan the QR code that you find around, it'll take you to the links for that and find out more information, but that's just kind of a fireside chat of who we are, what we believe, a little bit of history of Christian Fellowship Church, and so that would be your next step as a guest. After that, there's ways to plug in and serve. There's community groups starting up that we're excited about as well, so there's a lot of things going on, and if you scan that QR code that you see around, um, it'll take you to all the places. You'll see all the things, but we're glad that you're here. Uh, we're grateful that you're here we're going to ask our ushers to come forward as we receive our get ready to receive our tithes and our offerings father we thank you so very much for this opportunity to come and worship as a church body to come and worship as a community to come and enjoy each other's presence and to enjoy just what you've given us father out of that we give back to you what you've put on our hearts to give we love you we worship you not only in words and with singing, but also with substance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, so with that, we've got some announcements uh, on the video screen before Pastor G comes up uh, to bring the word this morning. Glad that you're here, everybody.
1: What's up, Charlotte?
3: Welcome to church today, guys. I got a couple of announcements for you. First off, coming up on September 11th, 12th, and 13th, we are having our annual first responders luncheon. So we would love to have you guys help come serve, greet people. So if you're interested, please sign up. There's sign-ups out in the lobby. So sign up for that. And then we will also be posting on our CF Women's Facebook page a list of food needs. We've got the main dishes covered, but we're going to need some sides, some desserts, Lottie is going to post a list of everything that's needed. So go check the CF Women's Facebook page and get signed up for that. Speaking of the Facebook page groups, if you're not a part of either our CF Women's or our CF Men's Facebook group page, go join that. That's where we post a lot of just internal stuff that we need to know, opportunities to serve. So go check that out. I think that's all I've got. Pastor G is coming up. All right. Getting that youngest Broadway involved. Very important. That's a family affair. You guys love worship on Sunday mornings. I am so thankful to those of you who lead and, and play worship. You know, when you come in, especially on the days when I come in and I'm teaching, I can go over the message and go over the message and go over the message. And there's always a point where I'm like, all right, I've done all I can do. They're just going to get what they get at this point. And then, and then God will remind me when I come, he's like, eh, you haven't done all you can do. You can spend time worshiping before you go up and that consistently gets my heart in the right place. And I'm very, very thankful for that. I mean, with the caliber of musicians and the caliber of vocalists we have, I was like having butter and syrup on my pancakes, you know, <laughs> in the morning. It's good. I mean, it's really good. But I have warned Will Walker that if he did not stop preaching messages that were better than mine (laughs) in like 5% of the time, that uh, we were going to swap on Sunday mornings because I appreciate his heart and his transparency very, very much. So I know you guys do as well. So, good morning, everyone. Again, if you're visiting today, I'm Pastor G. If you're not visiting today, I'm still Pastor G. Um, It's good to see you guys. Our senior pastor and his wife are on the latter part of their sabbatical. Uh, Two more Sundays from now, and Pastor Corey and Melissa will return from sabbatical, and we're excited to welcome them back. See a family, you guys have done great during this time, by the way. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, I considered doing a little bit more teaching on Sabbath and sabbatical today, as Pastor Brandon and I have done, but I decided I'd give it a rest. So, all right. I didn't know how that one was gonna go. You guys, thank you. You rose to the occasion for that one. Thank you, much appreciation. We are nearing the end of our summer teaching series on some of the hard sayings of Jesus, things we might wish that Jesus never said. And as a teacher, Jesus often spoke in a way that turned people's expectations on their heads, calling people to lose their lives to gain them, calling them to love and serve their enemies and to die to themselves so that they could truly live. And some of his teachings were very difficult to understand or accept at the time. But I think sometimes today, I think we can feel so informed or enlightened that it's easy for us to skim over them and act like we know what Jesus meant when we really don't. And I can't speak for Pastor Brandon, but all of the three that I have chosen are the ones that I probably needed to work on the most. And so those of you in the adult Sunday school class, you'll remember we studied today's passage a few weeks ago And it just kind of got jammed up in my heart and it wouldn't go away until I went deeper into it. And so now here we all are, all right? So today we're gonna be reading from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. This is the account of Jesus' interview with the rich young ruler. It actually takes us three gospel accounts to put all that together. We know he's rich. We learned from Matthew, actually, is where we find out he's a young man. Luke tells us that he's a ruler. So we put all that together and we figure out who he is. He's a rich young ruler. I'm going to read it today and then we're going to try to extrapolate from it some principles for our own lives and our own hearts. So if you're able, please stand with me this morning and we'll read the scripture together. Mark chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is God's word. Please be seated with me. Well, instead of me, I'm not gonna be seated. (laughs) There are two common notions that are turned upside down in this passage. What most people think about personal moral goodness And what most people think about riches and wealth are completely stood on their heads by Jesus. So yes, spoiler alert, I'm going to talk some about money today. My seminary professors told me that about one-third of the entirety of Jesus' teaching related to the topic of money. I'm talking about money in one of the three sabbatical sermons I preach, so I'm just trying to keep up with Jesus, okay? And if you need to, you can remember that my last two messages were on loving your enemies and forgiveness, (laughs) all right? The point Jesus makes is not about how much wealth this man has, and it's not about how much wealth you do or don't have. The point is about his heart and about your heart and mine. The rich young man in the story is both wealthy materially and wealthy morally. He's not only rich, he's also extremely decent and moral and upright. He is a man of exquisite moral character. And Jesus sends him away rejected. And there's two principles here that come right against everything we're taught in the world. The first principle is in verse 25. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the second principle is verse 18. When Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God himself, God alone. Jesus says to the man, your understanding of riches and your understanding of moral goodness are wrong. He turns these two common ideas that the world holds upside down and he gives us new ones. We're going to look at them together today. Jesus tells us something new about wealth and he tells us something new about moral goodness. The first principle basically is that he tells us about the great, great danger of spiritual and material wealth. There's great danger in it. It is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been around Bible teaching for long, you've heard a lot of people do some interesting explanations about what that means, right? I've heard people say, well, the word needle is not actually about a literal needle. It's about a opening or a doorway in a city wall, which is hard for a camel to go through, but it's not impossible, right? And I've also heard people say, maybe you heard this too, that the Greek word for camel, which is camelos, not too difficult there, right? You guys have already learned some Greek this morning, okay? All right, so the Greek word kamelos sounds a lot like the Greek word for rope, which is kamelos, right? And so many people say, hey, I think maybe a scribe made an error. Maybe they just misheard Jesus. And what he's really saying is not that it's hard for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, but for a rope to go through, which again is hard, but it's not impossible. And of course, those ideas, I think, try to get out from under the weight of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is trying to tell you something that is impossible. That's the whole reason the disciples are absolutely astonished. They're astonished because Jesus is telling them that the more money you have, the more spiritual dangers there are for you. And that cuts right against what the understanding of wealth was in that day. And I think to some degree, it's still a common understanding of what wealth is today. See, in Judaism at the time, Your wealth was an indication of God's favor. If you were prospering financially, it means God must like you because you're a good and upright person. And if you were not prospering financially, if you were instead in the throes of financial distress or you were becoming impoverished at the time, the idea simply was, well, obviously, you're not living right. In the movie, The Sound of Music, which is one of the many classic movies I now enjoy because Millie made me watch it, (laughs) right? There's a scene where Captain Von Trapp and Maria have found each other and they're about to be married and their lives and they're gonna be happy and they sing a very sweet and sentimental little song to one another that says, somewhere along the way in my life, I must have done something good, right? It's definitely not one of the more memorable songs in the film, but it gets the point across, right? as they stare longingly into one another's eyes, the idea here is somewhere in my wicked and miserable past, I must have done something good. Why else would all this wealth and this blessing be coming to me? However, we know that when Job, that great and very wealthy man in the Old Testament, when he loses all his wealth, his friends Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar come together And they sing the reverse, right? Those are Bible names you don't hear parents naming their kids these days, right? Job's friends say, Job, you've lost all your money and all you have, and now you're a poor man. And if you're not doing well financially, it must mean that God doesn't like you. Somewhere in your past, you must have done something bad. That's what they're saying, basically. And I hope that many of you know that what actually happens in the book of Job The reasons Job lost his money are due to evil forces in the world. The world is a broken place, and it's full of evil forces. And sometimes, therefore, you suffer losses due to calamity and oppression. And of course, you can get into poverty through sin. Of course, you can get into it through gambling. You can get into it through lack of wisdom, through laziness, through sloth, and so on. But those are not the only reasons, the Bible tells us, because the world is full of evil forces. And the reason that Job became poor is because of those evil forces and because God had a purpose in Job's life for that suffering. In our day, I think both the left and the right politically have a tendency to oversimplify the issue of wealth. If you're wealthy, it's because you're working hard and you're diligent right that's one way of looking at it and the other way to look at it is if you're wealthy it's because you've taken all that wealth away from other people so if you're wealthy you're an oppressor and the point is neither the simplistic idea that if you're doing well god must like you or the idea that if you're doing well you're a wicked oppressor neither of those ideas is valid and in fact both of those approaches to wealth are unbiblical instead What we're told in scripture is that wealth can come and can go because of matters outside your control. But the one thing that the Bible is constant about is that wealth is a more spiritually dangerous position to be in than poverty. Years ago, there was a man, there was a book called The Christian Directory written by a man named Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan and he wrote this book in the 1600s. It was basically a total guide to how to live a Christian life. And what Baxter would do is he would say, here's what the Bible has to say about people who are in this particular condition in life. Pretty amazing, it was written over 400 years ago, and and nothing about it has really changed, because the scriptures haven't changed, right? And one of the things he said was that here are the things that if you happen to be wealthy, you better understand from the scripture. And this is what he says. He writes, Ordinarily, riches are far more dangerous to the soul than poverty and a far greater hindrance to the apprehension of eternal life. Christ gives you so many terrible warnings about riches and so describes the folly, danger, and misery that comes from them. In Luke 12, 17 to 20, Luke 16, 19 to 21, Luke 18, 21 to 23, Romans 13, 13 to 14, 1 John 2, and he goes on and on and on. And then he writes, humility and self-denial is always necessary for the salvation of a soul, but it's more difficult in your case. And what Baxter is saying is not that it's good to be poor. In many ways, there's tremendous spiritual danger for the poor. And in fact, he's got a whole chapter on that too. But what he says is something that Jesus says, and we can't get out from under it, and that's that money has spiritual, tremendous spiritual dangers attached to it. Look how Jesus gets that across in Mark 10. First of all, the young man comes and seems to be saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he expects Jesus to talk to him about theology or about morality. He comes and says, teacher, I'm a very good man. I honor God, I obey the commandments, I'm a very morally decent man, I'm seeking God and yet there's something missing. And he likely expected Jesus to talk intellectually about certain theology. Ah, young man, the problem is that theologically you don't understand this. Or maybe he thought Jesus was gonna talk about morality or good deeds. Here's something else you can do, instead, Jesus starts talking to him about money. And the reason Jesus talks to him about money is because he's a wonderful counselor. Jesus always gets personal. He always tends to look into your heart and find the unvarnished truth about you. And he shows you what's at the center of your soul. He takes the young man and he starts talking to him about money and he says, one thing you lack. Give away everything that you own to the poor. And then come follow me. And then you'll have eternal life. Now what's Jesus saying? There is no place in the Bible, no place anywhere else that we are commanded to go into voluntary poverty. There's no place that we're commanded to give away everything. Jesus does not quote a scripture here Does he? He doesn't say, as it says in the law, as it's written, give everything away to the poor. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. So instead, what's he doing? Jesus is after this man because it's his attitude toward wealth, which is the controlling and besetting idol in his life. The question is not what's in your wallet. The question is what's in your heart? about what's in your wallet. In some translations, after the young man has gone away, and if you have an old King James translation, you'll see it, Jesus says how hard it is for them who trust in riches to inherit eternal life. In 1 Timothy verses nine, 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so what Jesus is saying is that the trouble with this man is not his money as such. The problem is not his money as such. When Jesus meets with Zacchaeus and he changes his life, Zacchaeus gives away half his possessions to the poor to pay his debts. And on another occasion, when Jesus met up with Nicodemus, the wealthy Pharisee, Jesus didn't bring up money at all. So it can't be that the money is the problem as a such, rather, it's the man's attitude towards money. It's what's in his heart. And so what Jesus says to them, to him, is that money itself is not a bad thing, but it's become your trust and the thing that makes you feel like you've got a place in the world. It's become your defining factor. It's what makes you who you are. It's become your identity, and we've got to get rid of it or you and I can't do business. Now, this shouldn't be a total surprise to us. In modern culture, in our day, we talk a lot about sex and money. All the time, sex and money. There's a marriage breakup, it's sex or money. There's people talking in the corner with their voices down, they're talking about sex or money and they don't want anyone else to hear. What is it about sex and money? This is what there is about them. They were both invented in Genesis two. They go way back together, right? And I totally stole this idea, but I think it's fascinating, all right? So run with me here. In Genesis chapter two, when God is making us human beings, he does two things. First, he gives Adam and Eve to each other. God says, it's not good for you to be alone. I want the man and the woman to be together. There's sex. And then God gives to Adam and Eve both the world. He says, I want you to have dominion over the world. Take it, cultivate it, and care for it. I'm giving you the created world to keep as a trustee. So the two things that God gave in the beginning were to give Adam and Eve to each other, and that's sex. And he gave them both the world, and that's money. How? How? It's because money is power over the created universe. The more money you have, the more of the world you control. The more things you possess, the more you have to take care of. Because, see, money is something that has to be taken care of. Money brings into your power more things for you to take care of. And that's one of the reasons why money actually gives us so much dignity and satisfaction. It gives us dignity and satisfaction because it gives us things to take care of. And we were originally built for that. That's the same reason that sexuality is also so powerful. It was invented in the beginning and who you are as a male or a female and sexual relationships are very important because they're intrinsic to our humanity. That's the reason why under the influence of sin, Money and sex are so powerfully evil. There's a lot of things about human existence that have been touched by sin, but money and sex are intrinsic to who we are as human beings. And under the influence of sin, they so quickly and so easily become idols in our lives. Human sin always leads your heart to create idols. Martin Luther called it an idol factory. What's an idol? An idol is a good thing that we decide to turn into a god. It's a good thing that we put into our center. What more natural than things like sex and money? Things that were invented in the beginning, things that are central to our humanity, and of course, things that are both tremendously satisfying. But under the influence of sin, as a way of keeping out from under God's power and authority so that we can keep control, we look at money and we look at sex and say, if I have that, then I'll be worthwhile. Let me say it this way. Money should be our dignity, but under the influence of sin, it becomes our definition. What's the difference? Only one of degree. Money is a fine thing, Money gives us a sense of dignity because we're able to cultivate and own and take care of things with money. You can take care of things with money and you can't take care of things if you don't have any money. And the more things you have to take care of and the more things you have to manage, the more you sense that human dignity coming. But under the influence of sin, the Bible says, that wonderful dignity turns into idolatry and money becomes an idol. And it becomes a God. How do you know if that's happened to you? I'm sure you're all asking. Now, in this man's life, Jesus obviously goes right to the center and says, Money is the thing, it's the idol, it's the controlling thing in your life, and unless we break its grip on you, I can't deal with you. But in all of us, even if it's not the controlling idol, To some degree, it's cursed by sin. So what are the signs of idolatry with money? Richard Baxter in the Christian Directory mentions these. One is, if you find yourself often envying people who've got more, or if you find yourself regularly worried about it. Now, I know there's times and seasons where you need to worry about money. But if you find that it's just a base note of your whole life, whether you have it or you don't have it, whether you have a lot or you have very little of it, if you're the kind of person that always feels like you don't have anything and you're the kind of person that's always anxious, Matthew 6 talks about that. If you look carefully in Matthew 6, you'll see that what's going on in your life, worry about food and drink, worry about what you're wearing, Worry over money, and avarice and greed are linked together because they're built out of the same thing. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And right after that, Jesus talks about worry and basically says, your father knows what you'll need and he will supply it. So if you're constantly worried about those things, Which master are you actually serving? Or I'll give you the better test. And this is a biblical test, okay? In the Bible, in the Old Testament and throughout, there's a rule of thumb given to us to tell us whether or not we're generous in God's eyes. And the rule of thumb is the tithe. The Bible says normal biblical standards for what a generous person gives is that 10% of your income you give away. You give it to people who need it. You give it to the poor. You give it to the church. You give it to charity. 10%. The Bible says that's a biblical standard for generosity. If you can't tithe, now listen, if you can't tithe, it means you're either too spendthrifty or you're too miserly and money has too much control over you. If you can't tithe, it's because you're living beyond. You're spending too much money on your lifestyle or else you've got plenty of money and you're too tight with it. If you can't tithe, if the idea of giving away 10% appalls you, then money has got more control over you than it ought to have. Someone says, that's unfair. I know somebody who's living hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck, how can they tithe? And I know that there's seasons and times in which you can't tithe because the Bible also says, owe no man anything. And if you've got a bill to pay, you pay the bill. And you have to work yourself out of a tight squeeze to the place where you can be more generous. But please don't say, or don't think that what I'm saying is unfair to the poor or the working class person. All statistics show that the less money you have, the more you give away. All statistics show the less money you have, the greater percentage goes to charity. Everybody knows that, you can look it up. All the research shows it. People who make less than $15,000 to $20,000 a year tend to give away 4% to 5% of their income to charity. And people who make over $100,000 a year tend to give away less than 1%. That's the way it's always been. The idea is if money under the influence of sin has become too important to you, it's fraught with spiritual dangers. It's full of spiritual danger, Jesus says. And it's possible that it could be your controlling idol. Could be it's the thing that makes you feel like you're worthwhile, makes you feel like you count, and it's become your trust. And sometimes you can't tell. I've been a pastor for a pretty long time. And over the years, a number of people have come to me and confessed a problem with drunkenness or confessed a problem with lust. Never, ever has anyone come to me and said, Pastor, I have a problem with greed. It's never happened. And yet the Bible warns against greed at least 10 to 20 times more than it warns against lust. Now what does that mean, church? It means that greed must be many times more dangerous than lust. And yet, we must be many times less aware of it in ourselves. If money is in the heart of a sinful person, to some degree, it's going to exert those kinds of influences. But it could be the controlling thing, and that's what it is here for this man. And so Jesus comes after the young man, and he challenges him, and he does two things, basically, to enable him to get free from the idolatry of money. And all of us have to learn from it. First thing is... He doesn't just say, give away all your money. He says, give away all your money and follow me. Which is his way of trying to say that I want you to see that if you have me, you have everything that you need. For all we know, if the young man would have said yes, Jesus would have done the very same thing that God did with Abraham and Isaac. Remember, God said, I want you to kill Isaac. I want you to kill Isaac, kill Isaac. And Abraham says That makes no sense, God. You've never said anything about human sacrifice. I don't see that anywhere. That makes no sense, but I will do it if you say so. And the minute he was willing, God says, you don't have to. It was not about Isaac. It was about your attitude. And the same thing might well have happened here. The rich man could have easily said, I don't get it. I don't see that any place in the scriptures, Jesus, but if you say so. Jesus is saying, I don't just want you to get rid of your money, but he's saying, I want you to get rid of your money to follow me. I want you to see that I am all that you need. And the other thing that Jesus says is not only do you have to snip that psychological lifeline and change your attitude towards wealth, but then he says the way to do that is to become radically generous. You notice he doesn't just say to completely give away your money in general. He says to give away your money to the poor. And I think the reason for that is that there's nothing that helps your perspective more than for you to be truly involved with people who have great needs. Anybody in this room who's regularly involved with people with severe economic problems, and they are here in our community, anyone here who's regularly involved with the poor, you know how that changes the way you spend your money, I hope. You have to spend some time with these folks and see How little they have, and see the brokenness in their life, and how hard it's going to be for them to get themselves up out of that place. And you try to help them. And the way you spend your money is instantly affected, it's totally impacted. Jesus is not stupid when he says, I want you to be involved with the poor. He says to the man, You've lost your perspective. I want you to be radically generous. I want you to be involved with the poor. And I want you to snip the umbilical cord to your money. And unless you do, I can't work with you. And the disciples were utterly astonished. They thought rich people were the perfect people to have in their new church. They said, You know, Lord, we don't have a very big church right now, we've only got 12. And you know, some of us are fishermen, and a couple of us were just politicians without a job now. Actually, none of us have a job now. We just follow you around, you know. Um, And wouldn't it be good if we had some people like this? And surely God favors this man. Look at his wealth. And Jesus looks at him and says, I can't work with you unless you see the spiritual danger of riches. And unless you begin to admit those dangers and admit what an impact money has on you, and you become radically generous and get involved with people in need, and you get off your high horse and you admit just how much money controls you. Otherwise, I can't deal with you. Now, the last thing, and it's something that I don't have to spend and obviously can't spend that much time on, there was a second And yet, very important point that Jesus was making. Not only was this young man materially wealthy, but he was morally wealthy. Young man comes and says, good teacher, I've kept the commandments since I was little. I've obeyed them since I was little. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. (laughs) I respect people, right? He comes to Jesus and says, I have an idea. I really don't know what's missing. What else must I do? What have I left out? Now, here's what Jesus does. We always come to Jesus this way in the beginning. We expect Jesus to add something to our lives. Just give us that little push over the hump. We're not too bad, you know. We just need that missing part. But Christianity is never an addition. Christianity is an explosive. Christianity comes in and completely destroys what you have and gives you a whole new worldview, a whole new approach and everything. And Jesus completely contradicts his approach. What must I do? And Jesus says, you think you're obedient? You think you've obeyed all the Ten Commandments? How about just the two great commandments? All the Ten Commandments can be summarized as love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus brilliantly says, fine, I'll give you an example. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And that perfectly, perfectly sums up both of the great commandments. See, on the one hand, he says there's nothing that should be more important or absorbing to you than God. There shouldn't be anything in your life that's more exciting from God. And that means if you have your heart and your mind so totally engrossed with God, everything and anything else will seem small and trivial by comparison. And so getting rid of your money shouldn't be that hard. On the other hand, it's also a perfect way of loving your neighbor as yourself. Look at all the people out there who are needy. So Jesus says, do you love God? with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Are you willing to do this for me? Are you willing to make me so number one in your life that you do this for me? And the young man can't do it. What's Jesus saying? He's trying to say that morality and goodness is not enough. No one is perfect. No one is righteous, no, not one. Morality and goodness are never enough. And Jesus comes in and he slashes his feet right out from under him and he says, Give away all those things and follow me. What is he saying then? He's saying, I've got to be your real riches. Young man, he says, You seem to think you've got the greatest amount of money and the greatest estate in all this region, but I want you to look at me as your only treasure. I want you to give away all your other treasure and make me your only treasure, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? Wherever, Whatever your real treasure is, it has your heart. That's Jesus in Matthew 6. In the book of Matthew, we're also told, he actually says to the young man, not just follow me, but take up your cross and follow me. We've already heard a great message about what that means. He makes a reference to the fact that Jesus is taking up a cross and he's saying to the young man, I've got to be your true treasure. My life poured out for you must be your true treasure because I've done it all for you. I have to be your goodness. I have to be your righteousness. I have to be your wealth before God or else I cannot deal with you. Jesus does not add a thing. He destroys the entire framework, emotionally, psychologically, religiously, that this young man has. And he builds it anew from the ground up. That's the reason why the gospel never comes in and adds. It only destroys what you have and starts you over. The gospel changes everything. Has this happened to you? Has Jesus ever really dealt with you and you dealt with him? Or put it this way, has Jesus ever offended you and sent you away sorrowing? Has he ever shown you what's wrong with you? Have you ever been confronted with the real Christ of the Bible that says you're such a wicked sinner that I had to die for you and your goodness is not enough, but I love you more than you will ever know? Have you been confronted with the Jesus that looks at you and says, in the center of your life, you are in bondage. You're enslaved by the things that give you your identity, and you've got to have me, or you're lost. Have you been confronted with that Jesus? Has he sent you away offended, upset, angry, feeling like he's unreasonable? Or has he turned your life inside out and filled you with joy? Because those are the only two alternatives. Because if you've really met him, he'll either send you away sorrowful or he'll turn you inside out and fill you with joy. But the one thing that's impossible is indifference. If you really met him, indifference is impossible. And church, my friends, if you are right now really wrestling with him, Okay, if he's sending sorrow into your life, if he's showing you what's in your heart, if he's showing you the idols of your life and you're wrestling and you're mad at him, there's a lot more hope for you than anyone that basically just feels that Jesus is a good teacher and I try my best to obey what he said. See, unless you've been offended by him or you've had your whole life turned around, you haven't really met him. Have you met him? I hope you have. Pastor Brandon, Pastor Will, and I will all be up front here after we dismiss. And any of us, or actually even just the person that you came with today, would love to help you get to know Jesus better. He absolutely wants to meet you. He wants to change your heart and your life. He wants to change everything. Thank you guys for listening again, and God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.